0: Hello everyone, and thank you for attending today's webinar called "Improved Chlorine Disinfection with Online DPD
1: Analyzers, where Justin and I will be giving an introduction to chlorine disinfection and also
0: talking a bit about chlorine analyzers themselves. So these are the topics we'll be covering today. Uh, We'll start with some chlorine basics,
1: uh, then move on to how chlorine is used in wastewater specifically, Uh, then talk about how to use DPD analyzers for chlorine disinfection. And finally, Justin will hop on to give us a
0: live demo on the 3017M analyzer. So let's get into some chlorine basics. So what is chlorine exactly? Well, chlorine is a powerful
1: oxidant that will kill or inactivate most pathogenic organisms that are harmful to human and animal life. So this could be bacteria, viruses, or other dangerous microbes that we don't want leaving the wastewater treatment plant. In its elemental form, it is in the form of Cl2 and is either a liquid or a gas. The difference between these forms is actually pressure. So in our normal atmospheric, at our normal atmospheric pressure, chlorine is in its gas form, uh, but it can be pressurized to, into tanks to create liquid chlorine. Uh, which is important because liquid
0: chlorine is actually much more concentra- concentrated than the gas form itself. So chlorine was first discovered by a Swedish chemist named
1: Carl Wilhelm, Wilhelm Scheele in 1974, uh, where he was the first to create pure, pure chlorine gas by heating manganese dioxide with hydrochloric acid. He actually did a lot of other research on chlorine as well uh, and discovered that it was water soluble and then it, that you could also bleach things like paper, uh, uh, flowers, um, vegetables, like things like that. Uh, but it wasn't until 1810 when an English chemist uh, named Sir Humphrey Davy uh, actually determined that chlorine was an, el- an element, um, which he then named chlorine after the word, after the Greek word chloros, uh, which refers to a greenish yellow uh, color of the gas. So chlorine is used in many industries for disinfection. One common, one very common uh, use is in the public water supplies, such as wastewater, like we're we're like we're going to talk about more today. Um, it is also very commonly used in the drinking water process as well. As very, it is as a very high percentage of drinking water plants around the U.S. are uh, utilize chlorine disinfection. There are also recreational uses for chlorine, such as disinfection for swimming pools or for disinfecting uh, other public water. Uh, uh, other public water features, um, and it is also widely used in the production of different uh, in, di- in different industries. In this specific picture to the right, we have uh, irrigation, in which uh, disinfectant or uh, chlorine is used to uh, disinfect uh, produce and uh, and, and to, to disinfect produce and even used in the production of produce. Uh, of course, there are many other applications that I, that I have said here, um, and I'll go over more of those in, in a couple slides. So chlorine is so commonly used for several reasons. First off, it is easy to obtain. Uh, Since the process for manufacturing chlorine is simple and requires only salt as an ingredient, it can be manufactured and delivered to facilities, or it can even be produced on site for use. The process for manufacturing is on the left where we have a concentrated salt brine which is taken into the process. And this is where electricity is applied to separate the Na and Cl molecules. And then in the middle, we have the semipermeable membrane that separates the two products. We separate our sodium from our chlorine molecules. And which we actually have the chlorine gas, which is produced on one side. And the uh, on the other side, we actually have two other products that we get. Um, which leads into our next, uh, which leads into our next point. Uh, that, that one of the benefits of chlorine is how economical it is, since the other byproducts are hydrogen gas, which is commonly used as an energy source in manufacturing, and then sodium hydroxide, which is a very popular chemical in uh, in manufacturing, and often used as a uh, a pH adjuster. Uh, since these are such commonly used items, they can be sold, and the actual price to make chlorine gas. Um, is actually quite low. Thirdly, chlorine is also very effective. It is the most effective disinfecting product out there. Life Magazine even wrote uh, in an article that the filtration of drinking water plus the use of chlorine is probably the most significant public health advance of the millennium, uh, which those are very strong words. And lastly, chlorine disinfection is an easy process to implement. Retrofitting chlorine injection locations or chlorine processes do not always require a specific footprint or a mechanic, and the mechanical parts for, uh, are minimal for
0: maintenance uh, compared to other types of processes that you could insert for disinfection. And just to emphasize how often chlorine is used, uh, here's a tree of chlorine applications where chlorine is used as
1: the end product in all these white circles you see here. Uh, but they're also used in the process of making all of these orange circles here. So in addition to water and wastewater treatment, we have plastics on here, we have cosmetics, we have pharmaceuticals, uh,
0: silicone uh, used for crop protection, as I already mentioned, and much, much more. So how does chlorine actually disinfect? Well, research is not exactly sure on the exact mechanism, but the
1: hypothesis is that chlorine attacks the cell wall or the outer membrane. Also, chlorine affects different pathogens differently depending on their cell type. For those that have taken a microbiology class uh, like I have, we'll remember a few of these these terms here I'm about to say. So gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, typhoid fever, cholera, and other diseases uh, have these cell walls that are highly susceptible to chlorine. Um, These are the most easily disinfected uh, bacteria out there. However, gram-positive are not as easily affected by chlorine because they do not have a true outer membrane. Uh, So you may need a higher dose or longer contact time uh, if you have a lot of these types of bacteria, such as pneumonia is one of them. And then waterborne viruses or even parasitic protozoans may even be more difficult to kill with chlorine, depending on the type of molecule. Uh, uh, Doses can be adjusted if needed to account for this but usually the thirty-minute, the standard 30-minute contact time is usually enough. So before we get into how wastewater is affected by chlorine, let's just start out with what happens with chlorine and water uh, when they are mixed together so we can get a basic understanding. So when chlorine is added to water under normal conditions, so that means a normal pH and normal temperature, um, either hypochlorous acid with HOCl or hypochlorite OCl is formed. This relationship between hypochlorous acid and hypochlorite uh, then exists as an equilibrium depending on the pH. The lower the pH, there is a shift towards HOCl, while a higher pH shifts towards OCl. And I'll show you, I'll show you these exact pHs in a second. But this is important because hypochlorous acid is 80 times more powerful than hypochlorite, so we will
0: always want as much HOCl available as possible. So taking a look at our pH curve of, uh, of the percentage of
1: each form, uh, we can see the ideal pH for chlorine disinfection is between 5.5 and seven. Uh, if the pH rises above 7.5, we risk losing some of our hypochlorous acid to hypochlorite, which is going to reduce some of the uh, disinfecting potential that we have. And then on the other end, we actually, if we start to uh, have a pH that lowers below 5.5, we risk losing our, uh, our hypochlorous acid uh, uh, amount to chlorine gas uh, in which chlorine gas may not even actually uh, turn into hypochlorous acid uh, if the pH is low enough. So between 5.5 and seven uh, is the ideal range for, uh, is the ideal range for uh, chlorine disinfection.
0: Now, we do have one other additional factor that affects this equation, uh, which is temperature. So as you can see on this graph,
1: the colder the water temperature, the more hypochlorite will be present. So the moral of the story
0: here is the colder the water and the higher the pH, the more hypochlorite will be formed instead of hypochlorous acid. Okay, now on to part two, uh, chlorine and wastewater. So, first, why are we disinfecting uh, in wastewater? Well, the EPA tests for the effluent of wastewater treatment
1: plants for the presence of pathogenic organisms. And this is usually done using plate counts, which is another fun microbiology skill that you uh, might remember. The National D- Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, or NPDES, uh, typically permits using total coliform and fecal coliform tests, which are actually used as an indicator le- for the level of bacterial contamination in the sample. Chlorine is one of the most common disinfection strategies in wastewater because it can disinfect up to
0: 98 to 99% of the microorganisms in wastewater. The disinfection stage is typically one of
1: the last stages of the wastewater process. Primary treatment, secondary treatment, and tertiary treatment are primarily used to remove organic solids, inorganic solids, uh, dissolved pollutants and nutrients, However, they're not the most effective strategy for removing dangerous
0: pathogens. So this is where disinfection comes in. Now taking a closer look at an example uh, disinfection stage,
1: and this one here I have up is actually a SCADA screen from a real wastewater facility. Um, We have our incoming flow at the top here, uh, in which the incoming flow will, uh, of course, be measured usually, uh, and then make its way to the mixing chamber here. In which they will, in this, in which this facility will actually be dosing sodium hypochlorite at this gallon per minute right here. Um, mixing needs to be as rapid as possible to ensure a uniform reaction before entering the contact basins, which is right here. So the contact basins in this particular case, they have several, uh, uh, several different uh, paths, several different pathways that can go through, um, depending on flow and depending on the contact time that they want. Um, now, each of these basins should be designed for around 30 minutes of contact time, uh, and they can, of course, add grids or take away. Um, this is where the chlorine will have time to react with all of the molecules in the water. After the contact basins, flow will head out to dechlorination, which we
0: will briefly talk about later, uh, and then head on out to discharge. Now, how does chlorine actually? Uh, So how is chlorine actually dosed? Well chlorine
1: is available in several forms, Uh, each is is mixed with water before uh, being introduced into the process. Uh, Cl2, or elemental chlorine, is a very common form used in wastewater. It comes in either liquid or a gas, and in cylinders or in large tanks depending on the size of the facility. Elemental chlorine is the most concentrated form and actually the most affordable. Um, an example of the mechanism for dosing pure chlorine is shown here at the right um, where we have a tank of liquid chlorine here. Um, as, the chlorine tank em- as the liquid chlorine tank empties, it's going to fill up the top portion of this tank with, uh, with chlorine gas. Um, using this valve up here and this regulator, it's going to, uh, depending on how much you want to dose, it's going to let an amount of gas out of that regulator and it's going to inject it directly into a stream of source water uh, before uh, it is mixed with the processed water. And from here, it will be then taken to the mixing chamber uh, to, mix with, uh, to mix with the processed water before the contact basins. Um, other forms of chlorine are available, such as both liquid and solid hy- forms of hypochlorite, and then chlorine dioxide. Uh, keep in mind
0: that some facilities may be able to produce their chlorine on site uh, and then dose from there. When we are dosing chlorine into wastewater, what is actually happening? Well, the first step is that chlorine is introduced into a
1: wastewater stream and mixed very quickly. Next, all of the chlorine is going to be first used up by the chlorine demand, or all of the molecules that are in the wall, in the, in the water. Uh, inorganic molecules uh, will be the first to react. Then we'll have organic matter and ammonium nitrogen that will react after. Of the ammonium that's in the water, we'll start to form these molecules called chloramines, Uh, which are monochloramine, dichloramine, and trichloramine. You can probably guess that mono means one chlorine, a molecule attaches to the ammonium ion, while di means two and tri means three. After all the chlorine has reacted, we are then left with what is called the chlorine residual after 30 minutes of contact time. Depending on the amount of chlorine dose and the amount of molecules in the water, we could have no chlorine residual left over or we could have a lot. Now, this is important because the amount of chlorine that we're dosing uh, is the chlorine demand plus the leftover chlorine residual.
0: And finding these numbers is how we're going to figure out the feed rate of our chlorine. Now to to determine
1: how much we need to dose, we need to take a look closer at a concept called uh, breakpoint chlorination. First, we're going to take a look at what happens to the total chlorine residual at different chlorine dosages in pure water. So, as you add chlorine into pure water, your total chlorine residual will increase linearly. So, if I add two milligrams uh, per liter of chlorine as my dose, uh, then the chlorine residual will actually also be two milligrams per liter. Um, same with four milligrams per liter of a dose, you're going to have four milligrams per liter of your total chlorine residual. And then, of course, as we go up, it'll, be, it'll continue like that. Now, that's with pure water. Now, when we add in that chlorine demand, so many of that, uh, any of that inorganic matter, ammonium, organic matter, uh, when we add chlorine, and when we add chlorine, um, our total chlorine residual will not always increase because the chlorine is reacting with other things like, uh, like the demand, that inorganic matter, ammonium, or organic matter. So let's go through the same graph, but with some chlorine demand actually in the water, such as, with, uh, such as like we would see in wastewater. Uh, So as we first add chlorine, the inorganic materials will react first, or or the inorganic matter will react first, and our chlorine residual will not increase at all. And you can see that by this green line right here, which is staying down at a zero total chlorine residual as we increase the dose, as we increase the dose. So once we increase the dosage enough to satisfy the inorganic matter, we will start to see our ammonium and organics react. And our chlorine residual will increase because monochloramine, uh, which is the ammonium plus uh, chlorine, uh, is actually considered combined chlorine, which is actually going to add to our total chlorine residual. And I'll explain more about that in a little bit as well. Once all of the ammonium has reacted and we continue to increase the dose, Monochloramines will start to convert to dichloramine and trichloramine, which actually reduces our combined chlorine. And then finally, we'll dose enough chlorine to where free chlorine residual will be left over. And as you add more from here, the the chlorine residual will start to increase linearly. This point uh, where free chlorine begins to form is called breakpoint chlorination. And past this point is where we want to be, uh, is where we want to ensure that chlorine demand is satisfied and all of the pathogen all of the pathogens included in this chlorine demand have actually reacted.
0: And this is the point on the curve where we want to be sure or where we want to be, which shows us how much chlorine we need to
1: dose uh, which actually shows how much chlorine we need to dose to re, uh, to reach that point. So in this so in this case, uh, that would be around six milligrams per liter of a chlorine dose. Uh, we can see that we uh, at this point we have enough chlorine, we've uh, dose enough chlorine to reach breakpoint chlorination. Um, so we'll be dosing uh, around six milligrams per liter of chlorine, uh, which we can then use to calculate our feed rate for the chlorinator. And just to reiterate, the goal for chlorine disinfection is to dose enough chlorine to ensure we are past chlorine uh, breakpoint chlorination uh, and that some free chlorine is actually available. Now, another thing we need to define here is what exactly is total chlorine residual? Uh, And how does it differ from free and combined? Well, total total residual chlorine is the total amount of chlorine in a system, which adds together both free and combined chlorine. Now, free chlorine is the chlorine that has yet to react with any other molecules, so it's free. Meanwhile, combined chlorine is chlorine that has combined with ammonium only. So this, is, uh, so this does not include any of those organics or inorganics. This includes the monochloramines, the dichloramines, and trichloramines. These chlorine species will still hold a small amount of disinfecting potential, uh, but in most systems, we're trying to keep some free chlorine in the system. All right, so now how do we determine the feed rate? Which is, which is actually the number we send to the chlorinator that determines the flow of chlorine into the system. To calculate chlorine feed rate, you can use the Davidson pie on the left, which is basically an easy way to determine the formula uh, that you're going to use, depending on what you're solving for. So if you were wanting to, to calculate the dosage in milligrams per liter, which I have in this red square here, uh, you, would take the, uh, you would take the current feed rate, then divide by the product of flow in 8.34. So you would have, uh, Uh, your feed rate divided by MGD times 8.34. But if you wanted to calculate feed rate like we do, you will multiply all of the bottom here, or all of the bottom in this Davidson pie. Uh, So, uh, and that's how we get the equation on the right. So feed rate is in pounds per day, uh, and we're going to multiply together flow, our calculated
0: dosage, and the density of water, which is always 8.34. So before we start talking about analyzers, I do want to mention dechlorination. Uh, Since chlorine chlorine is
1: damaging to the habitat of our plant and animal life, minimal chlorine must be discharged into the environment. And this can be done in several ways. They can be held in detention ponds where the water sits and the chlorine slowly dissolves into a gas and then finally leaves the water. Um, This this same process can actually be sped up with some aeration even and we can run it through some activated carbon, uh, which, can, uh, which can take out the chlorine as well. Um, and one of the most common ways, uh, similar to the facility that I showed earlier, is to inject a sulfur compound that quickly interacts to remove the chlorine
0: just before we uh, discharge to our river. Okay, so for now, for my last session, let's talk about how DPD analyzers are used in chlorine disinfection. First, I, was, I at least wanted to give an intro into what DPD
1: analyzers are before Justin goes into more detail. DPD is the color metric analysis of chlorine concentration using NN diethyl P phenylenediamine or DPD for short. These analyzers can measure total or, for, uh, or free chlorine depending on the reagents. And of course, these are wet chemistry analyzers. So we have a uh, we have a flow sample that we inject the reagents directly into, which are then mixed and then turns into a pinker magenta color. And then this uh, and then uh, and then this turns in or then this actually runs to a photometer and is red uh, for uh, absorbance at five hundred twenty five nanometers. Um, and then this is actually converted to a chlorine concentration, like you'd see on the front of your analyzer. Now, Justin will talk more about this later, uh, but the reactions below are for what happens in both total chlorine
0: and free chlorine uh, and free chlorine analyzers. So there are a few different control strategies that are used to
1: dose chlorine. Uh, the first I have here, or the first few I have here, are called manual, timed, and step rate control. These are usually not based on a continuous on a continuous measurement. But are actually set by the operator based on either grab samples or just by experience uh, of the operator. Next, we have flow proportional, which takes the incoming flow and calculates a feed rate that is proportional to it. And then we have to- and then we have chlorine residual control, which utilizes a continuously monitoring analyzer and a set point, uh, And a set point for wastewater usually a chlorine residual set point above 0.3 milligrams per liter is used. And the goal is to maintain the chlorine residual above this set point, increasing dosing when the chlorine residual falls below that set point. And then finally, we have compound loop control, which is actually shown to the right, where real-time readings for flow and chlorine residual are used to maintain a chlorine residual set point. So we have a uh, a current a continuous reading flow meter, reading the incoming flow, our a uh, 3017m chlorine analyzer, uh, which Uh, provides a chlorinated residual signal, which will both be sent to the chlorinator or to SCADA. And then uh, based on the set point of chlorine, uh, based on the set point of chlorine residual, it will
0: will either increase or decrease the dosing based based on that set point. So where are we going to use these analyzers? Well, most often we're going to use a feedback loop for chlorine disinfection. In this case, we would
1: have our DPD analyzers uh, or a DPD analyzer after the chlorine contact basins, which then sends a feedback signal cho- uh, for chlorine residual uh, back to the chlorinator, which is, as at, which is at the beginning of the contact basins where the dosing is occurring. Another location would be after the sodium bisulfate or the dechlorination, which would measure the final chlorine residual before heading out to the effluent. This can be used as a feedback control for dechlorination And and it would also ensure
0: that your final effluent is as low a possible a chlorine concentration um, as possible. And finally, we have this, and and finally we have what this process diagram would look like.
1: Um, We have our flow meter and our 3017 M uh, DPD chlorine analyzer sending back flow signals and a chlorinated residual signal uh, to the chlorinator which will then change the output, or will change the chlorine dosage based on the chlorine residual set point, and then at the same time, uh, we'll have another chlorine uh, analyzer measuring the uh, measuring the effluent of the uh, plant and, uh, and measuring the effluent of the plant, uh, which will then send a dechlorinating residual signal to the sulfonator which can then either increase or decrease the, uh, the sodium bisulfite or whatever
0: uh, sulf- sulfate compound you're using to dechlorinate, um, which will then change the amount that you're dosing. All right, so that's it for me. I'm actually going to uh, send things over to Justin
1: and we're gonna get the, uh, the YSI 3017M uh, chlorine uh,
0: live demonstration going. So. Thank you guys. And uh, I will talk to you guys after for the Q&A. Yeah, thanks Ben for introducing me and thank you for letting us know a little bit about chlorine
2: disinfection in wastewater and how the DPD analyzer is utilized within that process. Secondly, I'd like to thank everyone um, for tuning in today or if you're watching this recording after the fact, thank you for tuning in and watching it. Um, so before we get started with the product demonstration, I'd like to give you a little overview of what we're gonna do today. Um, and we'll, we'll first start by talking about DPD analyzers in general. I know Ben covered a little bit of this in his presentation, but it's always good to go over it. And then after that, we'll get to the ins and outs of the 3017M itself. Um, we'll go through all the components, and I'll highlight some of the features and benefits and some of the product improvements that we've made when designing this analyzer um, and some of the differences you might see um, from our analyzer to maybe the competitions. And then after that, we'll go ahead and I'll show you how easy it is to do a reagent change on the 3017M since that is one of the most frequent maintenance activities that you are going to be doing with a DPD style analyzer. So. Firstly, to get into it, um, the DPD analyzer uses the DPD method. It's a color metric method that is reagent based. So, with DPD, you're going to have reagents, and the reagents can measure either total or free chlorine based on the reagent set you choose. That's pretty much it um, for a DPD analyzer. Um, so, we'll go ahead and we'll get into the YSI 3017M. So, start by opening the analyzer up so here's the inside, what the inside of the 3017M looks like. And we'll start at the top right with the display. So the 3017M comes with an onboard display with a four-button navigation keypad that helps you navigate through the tiers and menu structure and change any settings that you need to change um, throughout the operation and lifetime of the analyzer itself. This display is also where the chlorine readout is located. So, every two and a half minutes, which is the um, measurement cycle for the 3017M, is um, where you'll find the chlorine readouts. One thing that's great about this display is it lets you know what it's doing when it's doing it, which is kind of unique. So, it'll tell you when it's injecting the reagents, it'll tell you when it's calculating the results, it'll tell you when it's rinsing the machine out in between measurements. So, it's a uh, It's very nice in that way that you always know what the analyzer is doing when in normal operation. And then when when it calculates the results, the readout will pop
0: up on the screen.
2: Um, Another great thing about having a display on an analyzer is that it can be used as a standalone analyzer set up by itself, or we have the option to integrate it into IQ SensorNet, which is a network of process instrumentation um, that a lot of you may be familiar with. Um, With an expansion module, we can actually go ahead and integrate the 3017M into an existing or a new process instrumentation network, such as IQ SensorNet. Uh, that's pretty much it for the display. Um, so we'll go ahead and we'll move on to the sample pump next. So this here is the sample pump on the top left. It is a parasaltic pump. And one thing that's great about the 3017M in particular is that there aren't really any flow requirements or sample requirements necessary um, for the analyzer. As long as you get an adequate amount of sample within one meter of the analyzer, this sample pump will take care of the rest and get the sample into the analyzer. So there's no pressure, there's no flow you have to worry about. As long as you have an adequate amount of sample, the 3017 M will take care of the rest. As you can see today, I just have a Gallon jug of tap water right underneath the analyzer. And the sample pump, once we start it up a little bit later, we'll go ahead and pull the sample in. Another thing that's interesting about the sample pump is that it has a continuous flow. So um, before, during, and after the measurement, the sample pump is running and it's flowing uh, sample throughout the analyzer. We do this for a couple different reasons. One is it makes sure that the reagents from the last measurement are adequately rinsed out after the measurement's been taken place. So by having that sample continually pushing um, the reagents out between measurements, it makes sure that we have an accurate and reliable measurement. The other thing that we've noticed with the continuously flowing sample, um, especially in wastewater effluent applications and and even drinking water applications is that that continuously flowing sample helps to clean the components of the flow cell cleaner for longer periods of time. So it's gonna extend out that cleaning, that maintenance that you'll need to do every so often. Um, That's pretty much it for the sample flow. So we'll go ahead and we'll move over to the reagent pump. Um, So the the reagent pump here is also a peristaltic pump. One thing that's different um, from the sample pump to this one is that this one is a cassette style reagent pump. So what I mean by that is it has these cassettes here that hold the reagent tubes in place. And what I really like about this is that it's super easy to change the tubing out. Um, So with peristaltic tubing, you'll need to change that out around every six months. So when we're getting in here a couple of times a year, when changing the reagent tubing out, it's super easy. All you do is you will press down on this lever that's right behind this pump and these will drop down. So when they drop down, um, you can kind of see that each uh, cassette has one tube threaded through it. And so to change it out, all you have to do is take them off the, the tubing off the flow cell and then off the reagent caps and then thread it back through the cassette and then go ahead and
0: slide it back into place like this, like that and snap it back up. And then the only
2: thing you have left to do there after this is tension the pump stem or the tubing down. So you do that about three times and then you're back in business. It's really simple to do. it makes maintenance a lot easier with these cassette style reagent pumps. So that's pretty much it on the reagent pump. We'll go ahead and move over to the flow cell, which is this gray block here right under the display. Now this is, the, this is where all the magic happens. So this is where the samples meeting the reagent, it's getting mixed and then the measurements being taken. So a couple of things on the flow cell is that we use flow injection analysis to go ahead and mix the sample and the reagents together. So flow injection analysis is when you're you're injecting reagents into an existing sample flow. And then to help aid in that process, we use a static mixer, which is a a really efficient way to mix two different um, liquids, and it has no moving parts at all. So um, one thing that's great about that is you don't have to worry about any stir bars going missing, the less moving parts in general, the, the better, because the, the less that can go wrong. So that's pretty much the flow cell. Um, so we'll go ahead and we'll move down to the terminal block here. So this on the very bottom left, the terminal block is where power communication is hooked up. The 3017 M itself can communicate through analog or digital. The analog being four to 20 milliamp and the digital being Modbus 485 RTU. The other thing you'll find on the terminal block is two six amp relays, which can be set up for a, ver- a various amounts of different things. Um, a lot of times in the field, I see them set as high low alarms. So that is also something that uh, a capability of the 3017M, which is pretty nice. But as far as the terminal block goes, that's pretty much it. Which brings us to our final um, component or main piece to the 3017M. Analyzer, which is the reagent base. On the bottom right here, you have the buffer reagent and then you have the indicator reagent. And like I mentioned at the beginning, you can measure either free or total chlorine with this analyzer, and it's going to be dependent on the reagent set chosen. And speaking of reagent sets, we have this is how we ship our reagents. So they come in a set. Um, You'll notice that these. Are in powder form. And we do that for a couple different reasons. The first reason is it's a lot easier to ship reagents in a powder form. And the second reason, which is the more important reason, is that DPD reagents in particular have a much longer shelf life when they're in powder form. So in powder form, the indicator and the buffer reagents can last up to five years if kept in a cool dark spot. And then the DPD reagent, which is in this amber bottle here, will last up to one year in a if cool, kept in a cool dark place. So theoretically you can go ahead and buy 12 months worth of reagents ahead of time. And that way you don't have to worry about shipping delays or any supply chain issues throughout that year. And you always, when it's time to change reagents which is around every 30 days again, um, you'll just be able to go up to the shelf where these are stored, pull them down, mix them up and then put them in the analyzer and you're good to go. And speaking of mixing them, um, we'll go ahead and actually do that right now. Um, a lot of people think with mixing reagents or making your own reagents, it's uh, it's an extremely precise um, and tedious process. But with the DPD reagents, that's not really true. And so to prove that to you, I'm going to go ahead and mix these up, and then we'll change it out, and then we'll run a couple samples here while we're doing Q&A. So, what I like to do, well, before before we even start that, let's talk about what we'll be mixing into these reagents. So you can't just mix um, you can't just mix tap water into these powder reagents because tap water has chlorine in it. So we recommend using DI water, and if your plant doesn't have DI water, distilled water works just fine as well. So you can find distilled water just about at every grocery store. Um, And that's what I've got today since I'm in my home office. So we'll go ahead and we'll start with the buffer. So what I do, then I'll show you how it's labeled here.
0: If you can, I can get this to focus. There we go, maybe. Well, it
2: says buffer, Uh, it says free chlorine buffer. So there you go, now you can see it. So, and then you've got a fill line here. So it's really simple with a buffer, all you do is you get the distilled water here and you're just gonna pour it in to the fill line. And don't worry about um, if you don't get quite up to the fill line or if you go over the fill line a little bit, it's not, um, like I said, it's not a precise process. So, you know, if you're under or over a little bit, no big deal, the reagents will work just the same as if you hit the fill line on the mark. So after you've got the di or distilled water in there, you go ahead and shake it till all the um, powder is dissolved in there and then you're good to go. So usually this is about every it usually takes around 30 to 30 seconds to a minute to do this. Um, but it looks like most of them are good and dissolved in there. so I'll set that off to the side. and we'll move on to the indicator so that see if you can see this here. Maybe not, there we go, kind of. So this says free chlorine indicator and it's got the fill line. So it's very important to know that the DPD powder in this amber bottle goes into the indicator. It, if you pour this into the buffer, then you'll have to get new reagents because it will be ruined. So now that we're starting on the indicator, we'll go ahead, just the same as
0: with the buffer, but this time we're going to fill it up to the halfway mark. So around halfway, and then
2: we'll go ahead and shake it up until all the powder is dissolved in that.
0: And then after all the powder has been dissolved, we'll go ahead
2: and pour the powder from the DPD reagent in here as well.
0: So make sure you get all of that out there or as much as you can into the bottle. And then we'll set this aside and we'll go ahead and fill it up to the fill line. All right, and just the same with the buffer.
2: It's not a big deal if you go a little over, a little under, the reagents will work just the same. And we'll shake that up till all the DPD powder is dissolved. And one thing you might notice is that these are a little bit different colored. Yeah, let me see.
3: There we go. Now you
2: can see maybe a little bit better. So you are going to get like a darker yellowish color on the, um, the indicator solution. That's normal. A lot of people in the field think that they might have messed something up. Um, they are supposed to be a little different colored. And then the uh, the buffer will be mostly clear. So That's pretty much it as far as mixing the reagents go. It's a really quick process. Um, If I'm not explaining it out, um, it usually takes me only around, I would say, five minutes to do that whole process. So maybe if it's your first time, it might take you 10 minutes, but no more than 10 minutes probably. So now as far as changing the reagents go, it's as simple as switching the cap. So with the buffer, we'll go ahead and... We'll take out the buffer that's in here and we'll unscrew the cap. Now, one thing to note on the reagent tubing, there is a blue, a blue marker right here, and blue stands for buffer so that you don't mix those up. And all you do is you unscrew the cap for the buffer, and you'll go ahead and just place or rescrew that on with the new reagent, and then you go ahead and set it in. And it's as simple as that. We'll do the same procedure for the reagent. So pulling the reagent out, the reagent tubing has a little red tab on it um, for reagent or indicator is what the red's symbolizing. And then we'll go ahead and switch that out with the new reagents, screw the cap on. And then after that, we can go ahead and Go up to the top here under the display and start the startup sequence. That's pretty much how you change the reagents on the 3017M. I've seen guys in the field that get so quick and good at it. They change it in between measurement cycles and they just swap the reagents out quickly and they never even shut the analyzer off. Um, I wouldn't recommend that for your first time. Go ahead and shut the analyzer off and then, you know, take your time, mix them correctly and then go ahead and replace them and then run a startup sequence again, and then you will be off to the races. Um, But with that, that's the ending of my product demonstration. So we'll open it up. Um, I'll I'll hand it back to Shannon to open it up for Q&A. Thanks everyone.
3: Thank you, Ben and Justin. Uh, We'll go ahead and start the Q&A now. We had a few questions come in throughout the webinar. And the first one is, Uh, Even with chloramines being lesser of a disinfectant, can they be used for disinfection rather than free chlorine?
1: Um, Yeah, so uh, chloramines are actually, uh, uh, or combined chlorine, is actually, uh, does still have some disinfecting power, so you can use it. Uh, And depending on the type of, uh, depending on the type of process, or if you have ammonium, or ammonia, like, already uh, available in the process, or if you want to add uh, ammonium to your disinfection process, you can, use, uh, you can use chloramines as the disinfecting agent. It actually does provide some benefits over chlor- uh, chlorine, uh, but chlorine is generally the most, uh, the most effective as in it's the strongest. So it really just depends on uh, what type of process and how, effect- or how strong you want your uh, disinfecting to be.
3: Okay, thank you, Ben. Um, can the 3017M be added to the IQSN network and does it require a module?
2: I'll take this one. So yeah, the 3017M can be added into the IQ sensor net um, process instrumentation network um, via the a, an expansion module called the MIQ IC2 module. And this, actu- this IC2 module actually allows us to connect any third party sensor, whether it's the 3017M or one of our level and flow products from MJK to the, um, to the IQ sensor net system, and we do that through an analog input.
3: Okay, thanks, Justin. Uh, what's the max water or sample temperature for the analyzer?
2: I believe it is 41 degrees um, is the low end, and then 113 degrees is the high end for
0: that.
3: For yeah. Fahrenheit? Yes, that's correct. Um, What is the sample frequency on the 30-day replacement cycle for reagents?
2: Yeah, so for the reagents, um, when I say that it's a 30-day replacement, I mean that um, when we're talking about the the measurement interval is at two minutes and 30 seconds or right around there. That's what the analyzer is actually set to um, when it comes off the manufacturing line. Um, That is, however, user selectable. So you can go from two and a half minutes all the way up to 60 minutes, depending on um, you know what your process requires. Um, if you don't need a measurement every two and a half minutes, um, one thing to note for this though is that if you are towards the upper end of that measurement interval, you know around thir- measuring every 30, 60 minutes, the reagents may go bad before they actually run out. So that's something to keep in mind. the the liquid liquid DPD reagent last usually at room temperature around 35 to 45 days. So you'll just want to keep that in mind. You'll still want to replace the reagents out if you are measuring um, at longer intervals.
3: Okay, thank you, Justin. Um, Is a filter recommended for turbid water?
2: Yes, so one thing I don't have with me here today is um, one of the 3017M's accessories, it's called the sample inlet device. And this is basically a device that just allows you to get flow uh, or get adequate sample um, to the analyzer. So it's a device that always ensures that there's a sample readily available um, to the 3017M when in operation. And along with that comes a 60 micron filter that actually goes onto the end of the sample inlet cap. And so, or, sorry, sample inlet line and it caps it. So these are pretty cheap, inexpensive filters. Um, So depending on the process will depend on when you need to change them out, but that will make sure that um, no turbidity actually gets into the analyzer.
3: Okay, thanks, Justin. let's see. It was mentioned that no calibration is required. How can you be sure that the measurement is accurate?
2: Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, DPD measurement is Pretty accurate, and there's there's very little to no drift, especially with the 3017M. Um, one way to check that, and something you might be doing if you're using the 3017M for reporting purposes, is validating that with a different um, with a different instrument or with a different analysis method. So you can validate it with one of the DPD handhelds. You can validate it with one of the lab measurements from grab samples, or um, whether that's amperometric or um, Titration for chlorine, so that's usually how we um, make sure that the uh, thirty seventeen m is you know staying right
0: on on the mark.
3: Okay, thank you, Justin. Um, related to the max sample temperature, we have a question here asking if the analyzer can be mounted outdoors in the winter time.
1: So, uh, so the analyzer can only be there's, there's no uh, complete internal uh, temperature uh, compensation within the cabinet within this cabinet that just behind Justin um, but you can uh, with the help of either like a third party uh, a cabinet that has its own temperature controlling uh, you can be able to do that and we actually have uh, actually have a part of our company uh, called ISS uh, integrated system solutions that can help you um, that can help you do that so so yes you can but you need a, a third-party um, um, temperature controlled cabinet.
3: Okay, thank you, Ben. Um, can the analyzer ensure down to zero ppm of chlorine?
1: So, uh, so it can read down to zero point zero one, um, or even zero point zero zero one, uh, depending on the uh, whatever decimal sub point you set it at. Uh, if Justin can correct me if I'm wrong, but it can go it can go down to zero point zero zero one, or you can get even higher. Um, Accuracy or not accuracy, but more uh, precision by going down to zero point zero 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 one. Um, with that said, the actual minimum detecting, detecting limit is zero point zero three. So although it can read lower than zero point zero three, um, it will we can only or we only guarantee the accuracy down to zero point zero three.
0: Yep, that's correct. Okay,
3: thank you. Um, It looks like we have time for one more question. Uh, Can you summarize the pros and cons of the DPD method?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of uh, positive things about uh, the DPD analyzer that the other types of measurements may not be able to do or may have a disadvantage. So as an example, uh, DPD analyzers are uh, independent of things like pH and, uh, and temperature. And uh, with filtration, you can avoid like having to clean more often, um, uh, which is uh, good for the analyzer. Uh, but with things like uh, an amperometric sensor, uh, you are dependent on temperature. So it's actually going to be er, temperature and pH. Uh, so that will affect your actual output from the amperometric chlorine sensor. Um, and uh, next like maintenance is gonna be very different between the analyzers as well. So. If you have a uh, a DPD analyzer, the things that you're gonna have to you're gonna be able to change, which is usually less frequently, is going to be things like uh, reagent tubing uh, and uh, like every six months, like Justin said, uh, or every month you or every month uh, it will be uh, reagent changes, as opposed to the things like the imperometric sensors, which you'll have to uh, calibrate every once in a while um, or uh, change electrodes or electrolyte solution or uh, things like that. So, Justin, you can add anything if uh,
2: if I miss. But yeah, that's um, that, that's pretty much a good overview of how you know DPD um, some of the pros and cons. Um, just one thing to to drive home is that the maintenance schedule for a DPD analyzer is a lot more predictable than what you're going to get with Ampro metrics. So um, yeah, true. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it.
3: Okay, well thank you both for answering questions. That brings us to the end of our webinar today. Uh, Feel free to reach out to our team if you have any additional questions and thank you for joining us today. Have a great day.
0: Awesome, thanks everyone.
3: Thank you.